0: Welcome to Taxed Enough Already, where we only talk about action-packed topics like taxation, economics, and high finance. I'm your host, Dan Newwash, and today we're going to be talking with a good friend and colleague of mine, Dustin Martello, about property taxes, the effects it has on home ownership rates, and how Dustin is fixing it. Dustin is originally from Ocean City, Maryland, where he grew up. After high school, Dustin attended the prestigious United States Naval Academy. After graduating from the United States Naval Academy in 2002, Dustin spent 11 years on active duty in the U.S. Navy as a naval aviator. During his time on active duty, Dustin had multiple combat deployments and provided air support for over 30 combat missions in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. His distinguished military career also led him to be a flight instructor for the next generation of U.S. Navy fighter pilots and Dustin ended his active duty career at the rank of Lieutenant Commander. After completing his active duty commitment, Dustin obtained two graduate degrees from Southern Methodist University and Columbia University. Dustin had a successful career in private equity consulting, has worked as an advisor and mentor to other veteran entrepreneurs through Bunker Labs, and has been a successful real estate developer and investor. As the CEO of Groverton and co-founder of Pillow Pads, Dustin is currently working in both the private and nonprofit sectors to help bridge the wealth gap for veterans, first responders, and lower income earners by creating an easier path to home ownership through the reduction, mitigation, and temporary elimination of property taxes. Not bad, right? Not bad. That was, that was uh, a, good that, was a good, exit. good that
1: part was good. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was well written. Yeah. I
0: wanted to steal that from you. So I realize that we've actually known each other for the better part of a decade. And I've never actually asked you about your military career beyond That's like, fair. Oh yeah, you're your a yeah. fighter pilot. Cool. Absolutely. That's yeah. cool. Um, so before we get into how you're bridging the wealth gap for lower income earners, first responders, et cetera, I want to hear a little bit about your time in the Navy. Sound fair?
1: That's fair. That's all fair. Right. Yeah, all right. So what made you decide to serve our great nation? Uh it wasn't even in my radar until senior year in high school uh my grandfather served in world war ii he was in pearl harbor uh and he was a very active uh pro- proponent and participant in the Na- american legion uh, and in maryland specifically but also all throughout the country there's a camp for high school students called boys state there's a netflix series about it uh and i'm from being from maryland and the rest of the cousins we all attended boys state in the summertime that senior year going into high, sco- going into high school I attended Boys State where we did a tour of the United States Naval Academy and at that point I was sold. Uh, and even still I wasn't even completely, completely understood what serving the nation meant or, or was, I was really signing up for up until really the, my induction day into the, to the Naval Academy. And that was my, my true, this is a, there's a greater good than just me. So why the Navy instead of maybe a more superior
0: branch like the Marine Corps?
1: I was too good-looking for the Marine Corps, uh, is what that was told. Uh, <laughs> 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 you get count too high. Uh, <laughs> count too high. Um, and, and all joking aside, I, I, w- I want to say um, the, the the uniforms... No, actually, it was all still joking aside. The uniforms just didn't do it for me for the, the Marine Corps, sorry to say. It's, they're pretty
0: crisp, <laughs> man. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I know that the Naval Academy It's not like any... Typical college, right? It's pretty prestigious, and it's not a typical application process. Sure. So, um, what is that process like when you're going through applying and the whole the whole shebang?
1: Yeah, getting and, into and, the and that's
0: actually
1: a side uh, a side <coughs> um, gig or participation that I, I do. I'm a blue, it's called a Bluegold officer for the Naval Academy, and I do assist high school students through that process. It's multifaceted. It's Uh, a senator nomination, so your local congressman uh, nominates you to to join. Um, You take a physical readiness test where push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups type type of uh, ordeal. Uh, Obviously scholastically and academically um, above average, if not well above average for for US standards. Um, And all that being said, and and finally through an interview process through a blue and gold officer. So it's multifaceted and in its right much different than a traditional college application um so you have to be well invested and very interested in the process in itself so you care to share who the congressman was with us because that might depend on whether we kick you <laughs> out of here or not, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and believe it or not but coming from maryland i was uh i was afforded a, a kind of a special nomination the academy has um was and they find actually different states and vice president nominations president presidential nominations if you're actually from a state that's probably a little more competitive than others.
0: Okay. So you graduate in 2002. I'm assuming then you go on to flight school or whatever type of training. Tell us a little bit about that in your naval career. Yeah,
1: so your senior year at the United States Naval Academy, you, you kind of put together your wish list. Um, your wish list is, what do I really want to do in the naval academy? What do I want to do in the Navy? Um, at the time, I was wavering between a couple things. Uh, Navy SEALs was up there. Uh, EOD was up there. Oh, the glory hogs, right? The glory <laughs> hogs, absolutely, <Yeah. laughs> glory hogs. And uh, of course, pilot, right? Uh, you know, you're, when you're a 21-year-old kid as well, you're not, you, you probably might not have the foresight of understanding what the different paths of aviation were as well. But you're a 21-year-old, kind of young, testosterone-driven guy, I want to fly planes. It just sounds really cool. Um, and also coming back from, you know, obviously 9-11 had just occurred too, uh, can understand you can do a, a, a different kind of service th- in that space as well. Um, so at that point, I, senior year, I picked aviation, and that started as, as, after 2002, my aviation career and, and learning and, and pipeline through the aviation space. So you weren't guaranteed a specific job. It's
0: basically, you get kind of a wish list, as you mentioned, a wish list, but it's still going to be up to the naval gods,
1: right? It's up to the naval, it's funny, it's up to the naval gods, it's also up to your individual um wins as well. You still have to put forth the effort um, and you're still getting graded. An interesting part about the aviation career is you're constantly being graded and judged and uh, leveled between your peers of where you sit in the hierarchy of what you probably fly are going to be chosen for uh, as you kind of go through the, uh, the education process as an aviator.
0: Any regrets on not being a SEAL or? Totally happy with being a
1: uh, fighter pilot. Um, still a pretty cool title. It, is, it <laughs> is still it is still pretty yeah. cool to say, "Top Gun," especially with "Top yeah. Gun 2" coming out, yeah. right? <laughs> like so it's all come full circle. Yeah. Uh, at least I didn't give myself the, the beard or the uh, the mustache. Uh, there are times that I had that regret. Um, I had done part-time um, deployments. I would say deployments, but um, detachments with SEALs to see what it was like. Um, part of me regrets it in the sense of seen a different kind of sector of the Navy, but I think overall I'm relatively happy with how, how things turned out. And between
0: us girls here, Tom Cruise, he's actually too short to be a fighter pilot, isn't he? he he's, yeah. he's too short. Right. <laughs> they don't tell you that in the movie. So, is there any particular advice from military leaders or mentors, or maybe a lesson that you learned the hard way that really sticks
1: with you throughout your Navy career? Uh, Through the Navy career, I found my favorite leaders were those that took a personal touch to my life as a military officer as well, Uh, and something I tried to reflect upon my Navy sailors. The interesting part where I saw and I have seen a lot of tandems with both the civilian sector of poor leaders and or good leaders in the same side of the military side of things are those leaders and, and the sectors that take a personal touch and fought towards the people that work with and for you on a day-to-day basis. Uh, the military is just like a large conglomerate, a large corporation where we're X's and O's. They were X's and O's. It, it's an unfortunate part of the beast where a lot of military navies particularly or any and all above are transient type of positions where you can get lost in a cyclical Cycle of maybe not caring as much as you should, and it's it's horrible to say, but you, t- you t- recognize that you're sh- you yourself are in a cycle in a rinse and repeat type of environment, and I, I really took that I took that to heart because I saw that those parts that were were missing in the military so at some points. There's great leaders as
0: well. Don't get me wrong. So I don't know if you've experienced this, experienced this as well, but I've kind of seen it at least you know at least with Marine small unit and officers getting out into the civilian sector even the mediocre or maybe subpar leaders in the military still end up being great leaders or at least above average leaders in the civilian sector. Is, have you had a similar experience with that
1: or? I think that comes where you understand it, the I think a good argument is you look and there's statistics that don't don't quote me on this there's there's more millionaires that were the C students than were the A students. And I think that stems with the camaraderie and the social skills that The C students typically have, stereotypically, than the maybe the A students that are sitting behind books more times than not, and I think that social type of uh, environment is very valuable and impressionable when you get to the civilian side, just like on the military side of things, where leadership is a is almost just as much as a social as it is a, a hard skill as well. How
0: was your transition from? you know, uh, the naval world, military world,
1: to civilian life? I stru—I think I struggled, actually I know I struggled, just like everybody else did. Um, the th- you've heard this before, it's like you don't know what you don't know. And it took years to recognize what I didn't know. Um, I was fortunate enough to fall upon a, a blue chip company, blue chip firm, uh, making a lot of money right out of the Navy. Um, you know, I had a relatively decent pedigree coming out, so... I uh, I was I wouldn't say it was multiply diff- hard to find a job but it was what I wanted to do on a daily basis which was the hard part and understanding who I was as a as a business professional rather than just in maybe the navy sense them kind of telling you what to do versus what do I want to do on a daily basis when I wake up in the morning um and that took me a good 2 or 3 years to recognize of kind of self reflecting who I was personally and what I could um, provide into the, the civilian life. So, one of the issues that I share with a lot of my Marine
0: Corps brethren is that loss of purpose. Yep. Is that one of the struggles that you had in that
1: transition? I don't know if I've ever actually reflected on that and thinking that was true, but if you looked at what I've how how I've spent my life the last ten years, I think inadvertently I'm still that way because of it. Is recognizing where you sit in, I guess, the cycle of the, the cycle of society in some sense. Is recognizing that you can still give back to the world, and you have might have the tools versus somebody else that may not have the tools, and it's your moral duty, almost obligation, to use those tools wisely, um, and, in, and in ways that other people can't. So you were on the officer side,
0: yep. and I was on the enlisted side. Do you see the struggles? That I mean. All veterans generally, when you get out, it's kind of the same thing. Most of the Marines that I've worked with are on the enlisted side, yep. and it's that loss of purpose. Do you see the same or different struggles um, on the officer side as you do on the enlisted side?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, and and I think a function of probably just the circles that I already had coming from the military, and now this, I I'd predominantly probably do um, socialize more with military, prior military officers than the enlisted side, there is still that need and desire to the purpose or the, or the camaraderie of things, right? Uh, of understanding what am I giving back and what's my ultimate goal in life, right? Rather than it being very selfish and self-absorbing. All
0: right. Was there a significant
1: turning point in your transition that sticks out? Yeah. There was a very distinct um, transition that I found of understanding who I was professionally. Um, I'd had that, the, the blue chip um, gig and I'd, I'd seen the professional kind of corporate life and it didn't work out. It wasn't something that I, was, I, I inherently I was designed to do, wasn't built to do. It didn't fit my lifestyle, it didn't fit my kind of ultimate day-to-day goals. And I did what I think I advocate for almost anybody to do, is I sought mentors that were in different, um, different professions that were kind of the creme of the crop and I sat and had lunch with them. And I want to say it was a, an older professional from one of the big banks and I had been sourcing and I had been searching for her, her. I wanted to work for her. I was three or four uh, interviews in and I felt like I was a shoe in to be kind of her her right-hand man. I remember it had been a week since my one of my last interviews and I was coming from kind of part of the recruiting space, and it was crickets. And I'm thinking to myself, there's something awry here. And when that happens, I just get on the phone and say, can I give me status of where this update is for this new, new position? And I, I talked to her secretary here EA, and then 15 minutes later, um, this woman calls me, back, calls me back. And this message was, Dustin, if I give you this job, you will do a great job for the next year and then ultimately we'll pa- will we'll separate ways because you are not built for this life. She was telling me you need to go out and do your own thing. And in a matter of speaking, she's like you will be successful, but you will always be searching for something else. It's like the nicest backhanded compliment it the ever. ever man. Backhanded, <laughs> it was the nicest backhanded it was the nicest backhanded compliment ever of you would succeed, yeah. but you ultimately will ultimately f- in, in one half one way or the other separate ways in a short period of time. They're going to
0: lose money on you. You're going to lo- right? lose a lot of
1: money on me, and you're going to lose time yeah. on, on you. And I would be doing you a disservice by giving you this opportunity. Yeah. Well, to be clear, they're going to lose money on you because you got to be. <laughs> there's a period of profitability when you hire an employee. I want to be clear with that. Absolutely. They are putting an investment yeah. into that firm, but also recognizing that I wouldn't have lasted for a very long, long time. And that, and it wasn't hadn't been the first time that somebody kind of prefaced that with me in some way, shape, or form. But it was a very pointed, go find your own pa- passion and your own path.
0: So what advice would you give to other veterans that are maybe about to or are currently transitioning out of the military and into
1: the private sector? Have a lot of conversations, Um, a lot of conversations. There's one thing of saying, I want to be in finance or I want to be in insurance or I want to be a blue collar um, professional and get dirty every day. You don't know and understand that profession until you actually speak to the individual who's within it and understand what their day-to-day base, their day-to-day life is, and what career opportunities those different paths may offer you. Um, I didn't have enough of those conversations, and I would say early on I should have made had more of those conversations. Um, that should have been an obligatory requirement in the military, and should still should still be. I think they do their best job, but. Those are the type of things of the day-to-day lifestyle um, that I think we could have afforded the military people very well.
0: Do you see a lot of, so one thing, I mean, we've known each other for a few years, you know that I've built my business through networking with primarily the Marine Corps network, Marine Corps veterans, but one thing that's always surprised me is how few, you know, at least in the beginning of my career, no one's going to reach out to me because, you know, I'm not haven't made it yet, You're right? probably asking for something. And maybe maybe I'm thinking too highly of myself now, but I feel like I've kind of made it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it still surprises me how few veterans reach out to me. But anytime even if it's not a Marine Corps veteran, any veteran that reaches out to me, even Air Force. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> even Coast Guard. Even Coast yeah, Guard. Yeah, I think it's Merchant Marine would yeah, even count. Yeah. Even. I still always take their call and... I'm always happy to, you know, give them a few minutes of my time. No. Do you experience
1: a lot of veterans reaching out to you? I don't experience enough veterans reaching out to me. And it's also the way they reach out. Um I am very active on LinkedIn. Uh I do that for educational purposes. I do that just because of uh my business is just it's good just kind of see what's out there in the news and I I don't use it necessarily as a news source per se, but I like seeing what's happening in different cities as far as different uh, endeavors. I would Prefer to see more veterans reach out to me for different reasons. And even still, too, make sure you're tailoring your message specific to being a veteran rather than it being a marketing blast that's generic and not well pointed and aimed. If you're going to give me a message as a veteran, have it be a very well thought out veteran angled message and I will give you five minutes. Happily give you five minutes. If you give me a marketing blast that's generic to your entire social network, I won't give you the time of day. And that's the other difference too, is you give me that little angle that hey we're different or, or we have a, a, a mutual history to, to together, happy to give you five ten minutes and I'm happy to give you an introduction to somebody if if it needs be, but make sure it's well thought out and and pointed.
0: Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned that because one thing that was a game changer for me in my business is you know I used LinkedIn to start reaching out to these yeah. veterans, but the game changer was first I started just reaching out hey I notice we're both Marines or hey I notice we're both veterans. The game changer was when I actually looked there and I'm like, oh, okay, this person was, they were actually in the same unit as me, or we were both infantry, or we both are OIF veterans, just adding that extra little piece yep. increased my success in reaching out to them substantially. Like, it's not even measurable. You know, it's like I, I couldn't, the percentage has to be, you know, in the hundreds of percent. Make your message so,
1: personal, right? Yeah. If you make your message personal, it shows you gave that extra time that to ask for time back. Well... Before the other person, they, oh, you know, Dan thought Dan thought of this for this reason. I'll I'll reach back out to Dan and give him give him a couple minutes, and I'd I'd love to help the guy out. Otherwise, you're just an X and an L. Yeah.
0: So, why did you decide
1: to end your active duty career? I think it comes to uh, rinse and repeat uh, in the sense of I felt like I had seen what I would see have seen in the Navy at that point. Um, I definitely, if I think I still do, have, have served my purpose and have served my country. Um, and there's more out there to experience. Um, you know, I th- there's a lot of stuff that the Navy does, a lot of stuff that the military does to offer from educational benefits to seeing the world to you're really doing things you can't pay for in the civilian side of things. Um, and in the sense of the travel side, I love seeing the world. But it was time to move on to learn a new skill, learn a new trade. It would have been another seven, ten years of what I had already been doing the last ten or fifteen, and I felt that it was time for me to kind of branch out independently and make my own decisions rather than the military navy kind of prescribing those next next steps for my for me.
0: One thing that I experienced getting out of the military is when you get out, you know, really there's there's a process of getting out. Getting out of the military is in in my experience it seemed almost more difficult than getting into it, right? <laughs> but when you're going through that process, it almost seems like, you know, you're going to all these classes on how to help you transition into yeah. civilian life, but really it's just kind of more recruiting stuff. Like, hey, re enlist or you know we even had to you know, when we were doing one of our exit courses, we even had the Navy SEALs come <laughs> and try to be like, Oh, you guys are leaving the Marine Corps? Join the SEALs, Join the SEALs. <laughs> Um, But there wasn't a whole lot of emphasis on the benefits that we get as veterans. So what are the benefits that you were able to utilize? And what do you think were some of those greatest benefits?
1: Uh, I think very pointed to probably our uh, main part of our discussion today is um, the VA home loan and some real estate benefits that the government affords us. But also specifically, which I've utilized now twice, uh, are the GI benefits. Educational, educational side of things. I've, I've been afforded now two master degrees post military service thanks to the US government in my military service. Um, that's extremely valuable so overall three degrees from very prestigious um, institutions across the country because of the service I I gave to the, to the military. Um, that in itself is invaluable. Um, kind of a soft benefit is the network itself. I think we've already kind of touched on um you know you're part of a club if you will uh, a boys club um well a people club a people it's a people
0: club it's a people it's, club, it's a people club it's 2022 Sorry, it's
1: 2022 <laughs> a people club um and and you know there's there's smaller benefits that may or may not be be marketed um in various different ways you could just call it 10 percent off your local hardware store type of type of things Um, whether it be monetarily or um, special benefits that different states and federal governments provide specifically to veterans themselves um, that may or may not be used as much as it really should, but they're out there. There's a plethora of different programs that are afforded to U.S. veterans um, that you can leverage.
0: Well, one thing that I want to kind of correct you on here, so the the VA Home Loan Guarantee Program, it's not actually the VA that provides that to you, right? It's still private banks that write these loans. This, this is why I think it's one of the greatest benefits is because, one, it t- costs the taxpayer very little, yeah. right? Because it's still private banks writing those loans. The, gov- the VA's role in that is if you default as a veteran, they, uh, they pay 25% or provide 25% price. of the purchase price. However, the reason that veterans actually get a better interest rate is because when you look at any demographic, veterans are the least likely to default out of any demographic out there. Absolutely. So the better interest rate that we get as veterans, it's not because it's like Uncle Sam's hooking us up. Nope. It's, it's because statistically, banks like writing those loans. Absolutely. absolutely. They're also more valuable than the secondary market. It's almost a benefit to the, the bank if a veteran were to default, right? It, it, you know? it absolutely is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you end your active duty commitment, you've been able to utilize some of your benefits, got another degree, two degrees, but you and your active duty commitment, and then
1: you went to private equity. Went to private All equity. Right. Uh, spent a year or two as a private consultant, um, working on middle market acquisitions and um, mergers. Learned a lot about um, market analysis and statistics and, and things of that nature. But also on the side, I was looking at di- different businesses to acquire. Um, there's a, a plethora, and quite a few military veterans that might go to business school and then come out and look to acquire and purchase a business, and I was kind of doing the same thing at the time. And I learned a lot about business from the the small business sense because that was kind of the niche i was was, I was going going after uh, Or small businesses owned by typically older uh, individuals kind of you know the baby boomer that had kind of had their run of the market and uh, were looking to get out and and sell off their their business. And I learned a lot looking through their balance sheets, understanding their employees what made the company tick, seeing after years and years in business of where a lot of the inefficiencies lie and where I could add value very quickly to increase the value of the, of the business. Uh, but inherently there was, it was a very fabulous learning experience kind of being grassroots level of how you run a business correctly uh, and the different um, mechanisms that do so. So what, one of the things that I experienced,
0: you know, enlisting or I guess you commission Uh, You know, because you guys are all uppity, Um, (laughs) is I remember, um, not necessarily the recruiter, right? Because the recruiter is just like, oh, you want to be infantry? Infantry. (laughs) We got a job for you, right? (laughs) But a lot of people were telling me, no, no, you want to get a transferable skill set. But, you know, uh, you as a fighter pilot, but like the transferable skill set, directly at least, would be uh, being uh, a pilot, but but, but, uh, I think that that's a really big misconception because any time that you know, I have a veteran that uh, wants to work with me or is interviewing, a a mediocre marine. That we have the saying in the Marine Corps that Marines can only judge each other by their peers, right? Sure. Because even the average marine is still exceptional everywhere else,
1: right? Very well put.
0: But I would put that for most veterans. Yeah. You know, maybe 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 not. Like there's a couple branches out there we're not going to talk about, but <laughs> but Navy, Army, Marine Corps for sure. For sure. <laughs> Would you say that that's a big misconception on, oh, get a transferable skill set rather than do the military career you want to do?
1: I think you need to do the military career that you want to do and don't think of the transferable skill. Because I did that, and I think if I look back on it, and I, I did pick, part of my thought process for pilot in aviation was thinking about the transferable skill. And when I transitioned, the transferable skill being as a pilot wasn't really a point of contention when it came to was I qualified for the job. Was it a really cool topic of conversation? Yes, because everybody wanted to talk about the talk to the fighter pilot. But in the context of well is Dustin still qualified for this job, no way, shape or form was it something that they were thinking, well, if he can fly a fighter jet he must be able to put a balance sheet together and an excel sheet. That was that was not the same thing. Um, so I think definitely should pick what you want to do versus what the transferable skill is because at the end of the day I think a lot of jobs and a lot of professions are easily learned if you really put your mind to it. So are there any specific
0: transferable skills that you realized after getting out that you had that were that you just didn't think would even be a case like you know like elite, like leadership or um you know peer development or anything along those lines I
1: think I think it comes across the board at any part part of the military that you you get accustomed to understanding when there's times where there's a fire and times there's not a fire in the in the sense of well i 'll get to it when I get to it, or this is something that needs to be done in the next ten seconds and being efficient and thoughtful for the decisions you 're making in the civilian side right for or wrongfully, I saw. More often than not, things that wh- where there wasn't a fire, somebody else may have disagreed with me, but I'm looking at this going, nobody's shooting at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one's getting blown up. No today, one's getting right? blown up today, and this will still be here tomorrow. We'll all be fine. Um, I want to say that's also why I didn't personally fit well in a corporate structure, because I was a I, I definitely pushed back when it comes time to deadlines and times where some people might think that there's a fire and I think about no, there's times where you need to press the gas and there's times you can let off and give it a second, take a deep breath. And I think that's actually a great skill, especially as an entrepreneur, to understand where the stress lies in any kind of situation and whether or not it's a big deal or not.
0: So a lot of veterans get out and they actually do very well in a corporate structure, right? They like the structure, it's you know, a, a lot of businesses actually try to emulate um, you know, military hierarchies, that sort of thing, is. Were there any indicators that you now see, but didn't previously getting out, that kind of told you, as, you know, the individual, well, the corporate world's not going to work for me. I need to go on my own, so that maybe we could save some some of those veterans that think like, oh, I got to get out and go work for the big bank.
1: Yeah. Right. Was there a key indicator or anything? In the military, there was a key indicator because I always push back to my. My superiors, in the, even the officer structure, I know I pushed back quite a, quite a few times, and I was probably more open than not, probably not the best of officer when it came time to tell him saying how it was or how, how I thought about um, things getting, getting accomplished. And as, a, as an aviator too, a lot of it rests with well, here's your, you know, here's your um, your structure, here's your hierarchy, but when a push comes to shove and you get in the jet, that's your jet. It's not anybody else's jet. Um, and your life, the life of a passenger, passengers, and or the the jet itself is real responsibility at the end of the day. And nobody's gonna be there at the the pearly gates when it comes time to whose decision was made. It's like, well, it was mine and nobody's others. Um, so that's kind of like also to the early parts of me understanding who I was personally versus the corporate structure of some people saying, I really like the way that is set up for how I think about
0: things so have you worked with have you hired any other veterans other than other than me obviously so you have a pretty high bar (laughs) right (laughs) absolutely (laughs) have you worked with or hired any other veterans um, and is there an encouragement that you would give other companies as to why they should be hiring veterans
1: yeah I I have Um, especially when it comes to a veteran community I think there's that desire to, to do a good job and to do a thorough uh, um, job because of that brotherly or sisterly um, kind of, uh, I guess, team, if you will. Um, there, and there's that higher expectation without, without it being said. Um, I find that there are parts of the military that you take with you where the T's need to be crossed and the I's need to be dotted. That Big corporations really do um, love, and it's those fine, fine-tooth comb, fine-tooth comb parts that are very valuable, um, and to a to a corporate hire. So I can tell you
0: one of the benefits that I've had with hiring veterans, and this isn't a question. I'm just trying to push why people should hire veterans, um, specifically Marine Corps veterans, right? <laughs> um, but you know, we're not a huge firm. But the first Marine that came on to our firm and started working with us, um, my experience with him was, I didn't have to hold his hand for everything. I could say, "All right, this is what you need to do," and it wasn't. There wasn't a whole lot of "What? Well, how do I do that?" Yeah. He said, "All right," and he would try to figure it out on his own. And then he would only come to me if he couldn't figure it out on his own, yep. or if he wanted to maybe finesse the process yep. he was going.
1: Through. It's kind of the. It's the message of Garcia. It's I need this accomplished. If you have questions exactly how to do it, I'll give you the broad brushstrokes of what I'm thinking, but take the reins and get the job accomplished and you can tell me how you did it later. Um, Those are the kind of... and You don't want to waste your time walking the dog. Give the task at hand and if there's questions of specifics, they'll come back to you and ask. Otherwise, you can entrust with them that task to be completed on time and just like how you asked it. And And maybe better. Yeah, an in,
0: an invaluable trait. An I- invaluable I- trait. It's so rare to find, right? Yes. I, I'm looking for somebody who's doing more rather than the bare minimum. All right. So that's enough about you. My God, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but that's not why we're here. Um, not the main reason, at, at least, right? So we're here to talk about property taxes. How you're helping to bridge this sure. bridge the wealth gap, really, yeah. between um, you know, well, the wealth gap. The wealth gap, right? <laughs> um And you. And you found a unique way to do so with the mitigation of property taxes through pillow pads Correct. in which full disclosure you know to full disclosure to everybody, I am also uh on the board of pillow pads, so to be transparent, but n- none of us are compensated through pillow pads. It's a completely volunteer position for Absolutely. us, right yep. Um, so how
1: did pillow pads start, and why did it start so five years ago, I think you and I are in a in a workspace. Hanging out, and you give me a story about purchasing a multifamily home in Jersey City. And you leveraged the VA home loan to purchase this multifamily, which being an avid real estate investor myself, I would used, but I'd never leveraged the VA home loan to purchase a multifamily, which thanks to you, I learned you could use two unit, three even, unit, four unit. Even Marines teach you something. Even Marines and can, and teach right? me, <laughs> can teach me that. Absolutely. So we go down the rabbit hole of seeing that and understanding that more often than not, veterans aren't leveraging this, one, the VA home loan, but even more specifically, leveraging the home loan to purchase multifamily properties where just in your, just like in your example, you bought a multifamily, renovated it, then lived in it still with none of your own capital. Yeah. You're leveraging the, the bank and then resided in it more or less rent-free for a couple of years after which you, I believe you sold it for a, a good, yeah. a good pretty chunk
0: nice, of change. Pretty nice profit. A pretty nice
1: return. Yeah. Um, thinking it was a, more or less 1,000% cash on cash return, in the sense of you put nothing into it. Yeah, it's all profit. Right? And we looked at it and said, veterans across the country should be doing this all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. Um, and that was the kind of the first time that we saw there's a real need here. This is not a, just another nonprofit in the real estate space trying to do housing. This is a educational piece that nobody's touching that we need to voice to our vet- photo veterans. Because if we're relatively real estate and investment savvy and we didn't fully understand this, we could definitely provide a lot of value to the rest of the veterans out there. And that's kind of how it all started.
0: Yeah. Well, and and as you had mentioned, I mean, at that point um, in both of our professional careers, you were definitely the more avid real estate investor than I had been. and you still learn something new every day from it. But one thing that we came across that was really interesting, but also kind of shocking, it's only 11% of veterans end up using the VA loan, which is just mind blowing, and, and I think that's yeah one of the greatest benefits that we get. I again. think
1: that comes, uh, a the problem with that I, I see, and coming more even from the real estate space and getting a real estate license, uh, is real estate agents, through their their learn, learning and their um, educational pieces are less advocates that they should be to the VA home loan. And it's not something scary that the banks and or real estate agents and buyers should be, or I'm sure sellers should be worried of. It's just a different financing vehicle to purchase a property. And I want to say more often than not, they're, a veteran's probably skewed away from leveraging the VA home because of other people's opinions that may or may not really understand the mechanism itself. Yeah, I've I've actually found that there's
0: quite a lot of lenders out there that tend to not know too much about it. But also, when you go to like the USAA's and Navy Feds of the world, that's where veterans tend to go. But they have really strict guidelines, right? The VA has their guidelines, but then banks put on all these overlays, so it makes it actually difficult to go through your traditional bank. It does. It's normally better to go to maybe a specifically veteran-focused lending
1: group or brokerage.
0: Yes. Have you had the same experience?
1: Uh, same experience, or even a broker, a, a, just a general broker who works themselves that may leverage multiple different financing um, mechanisms, meaning different banks and b- b- different lenders underneath a different umbrella that can take a plethora of different um, banks' kind of best-case scenarios and provide you those pitches uh, so you can make the best decision. Because you're going to one bank, you're really just getting one underwriter's criteria of whether or not you get the loan and what the and what the loan rates are going to be. If you go to a broker who may be working with five, six, ten different lenders, different banks, you're going to get ideally you're going to get the best deal. So that's the veteran portion of it, right? Yes. But you've
0: since really blown pillow pads out of the water and expanded it now to first responders, um, people living. Uh, not below the poverty line, but uh, lower income. Lower income. Right. No. There's, is there an income threshold yeah, generally?
1: So the interesting part about and kind of how we've really taken that small little sliver for the veterans and really opened it up to any and all low income uh, is almost by letter of the law, half the U.S. population actually qualifies as a low-income uh, individual. Uh, the technical number is 80% area media income or below. And you think about the numbers-wise of, how many Americans do we have? In the kind of 340 Americans or so. If the number 350. 350 somewhere in that range. That so sounds like a good round it number. That sounds like a good round number. I <laughs> uh, checked uh, yeah. check the U.S. Census Bureau last time I checked. Yeah. But what's what's what, what is that in the context of term? 120 million Americans qualify by the letter of law, by the U.S. Uh, by the, by our our federal guidelines as low income. So by, lo- by by those standards, half the people are poor, half the people are rich. Just where you spot the line. Um, and that's kind of where our our wealth gap and our disparity of wealth and our difficulties of renting and or owning properties really starts. So
0: we mentioned, we talked a little bit about property taxes, right, but that's one of the big benefits that Pad is providing, yeah. right, is a reduction or even elimination of property taxes. Can yeah. you explain
1: that process a little bit or how that works? Yeah. So as a charitable organization, Pass is a 501c3, we are afforded more times than not by the IRS the option or typically the requirement to not pay property tax as a charitable organization in our pursuit of providing lower income housing to the low, to the low income space. Those that qualify as low So when we, are, when we own and manage real estate... Half of America. Half right. of America. <laughs> yeah. Once right. again, into, into yeah. the context of how, kind of how we're, we're providing lower lower cost of living to the low income, that's half the United States, should be afforded, and and I think we'll talk about this in in depth too, the exemption of paying property taxes just by definition of being what the federal government qualifies as a low income demographic. As as the umbrella, pillow pads, doesn't pay property taxes, and that is the mechanism that affords, you could call it the pass through uh, option or ability for the low income residents to not pay the property taxes of the properties that we purchase.
0: So it's like a rent-to-own option or model for these individuals, and one of those big
1: hurdles you're saying is property tax. Property tax dependent upon your state. So every state has a different amount that you're owed based upon the state. So Texas, for example, Florida are some of the higher property taxes. Some of the Midwest states have a very low property tax. But if you can figure 1% or 2% of the property value that's typically um, thought upon by the tax assessor office uh, that you're paying per year of the property itself, that's a huge chunk of change for a family that's, let's say, making thirty, forty thousand dollars 40000 a year, a fireman, a nurse, a teacher. So if you take that property itself and you multiply it by 1% or 2% a year, that's a good portion of what, what a traditional family's mortgage is, is going to be comprised of. of just the property tax themselves. So if you can... Like we have just and, and almost any kind of not, any really nonprofit or five one c three has this the ability to to pull out those property taxes that affords a, that family a much lower cost uh housing opportunity absolutely I mean you, you can see like some
0: places, for example, Long Island, uh, I believe the median property tax is around thirteen thousand dollars a year yeah debt in some cases is a third, if not more. Of the monthly cost of the mortgage, yeah. so that's creating a huge benefit and really bringing down a huge barrier in a high proper in a state that has a high median property tax at least.
1: Exactly.
0: So I know there was a very astute individual that uh, gathered a lot of this property tax data and handed it over to you. Did you see a correlation between states that have high property taxes, at least a median sure. dollar amount yeah. of property tax, and home ownership rates.
1: It's funny, so, so that astute individual who I won't name names who found that, um, and it is fascinating to see, and rightfully so, the states with a high property tax have lower home ownership rates. The the states with low property tax have higher, higher uh, home ownership rates, and, and I, see, I wonder why that is. Yeah. It's not by coincidence. Yeah, yeah, Specifically well speaking, you can you can narrow it down by a couple things. Um, and, and the function with that is how our tax system is completely off. In Large investors, financially savvy wealthy individuals have different mechanisms that they leverage to avoid and or subsidize their real estate overhead and costs just by a function of where they sit and the assets they have. Whereas it may be cheaper for them to acquire, purchase and hold a property than it would be let's say Joey and Jenny down the street that are teachers and firemen and that's their home on themselves under their own balance sheet. And that's really it comes to the just how our entire tax system as a whole is skewed to the rich versus skewed to the affording the, the lower income and ability for home ownership opportunities. So you're saying that
0: property taxes or taxes in general, at least in this scenario, are definitely not helping the lower income individuals?
1: It, it's it's impeding their entire chances of competing with wealthier individuals and corporations
0: and if I recall it was a significant difference in a state like I know I believe New York is you know it's in the top three of highest property taxes but the home ownership rate was close to 50 percent maybe 60 percent exactly but then you take a state like West Virginia which I believe had the lowest property tax and they were close to 80 percent home ownership rate, so it's a significant amount
1: now it's not obviously it's not tit for tat you can you could probably throw New York City in there where it's a majority of a renter city right uh, and West Virginia is probably, pre- you could assume, is predominantly scattered site single family homes, and that probably affords what? We know with Jersey or, or, or California that we're up there too,
0: right? Absolutely. Still that's
1: what I mean. And that's, that's, that's the argument to that is, is there's, there's probably a, a parts of the exemptions that, that can negate a part of that argument. But the same token, absolutely right. It's that property tax that you can see is being directly correlated to the home ownership rates. And that's our, it's our biggest problem. Yeah, so wait, the benefit you're talking about, passing the taxes through so that lower income people can afford mm-hmm. these homes that, multifamily homes, right, that you Well, we're, we're in single family homes now, but think about it this way, if- How is it passed through though? Because it's a type of corporation? Yeah, because, so a, a non-profit- Yeah, yeah. A, a non-profit owns a property. So the non-profit itself doesn't own, or doesn't, isn't required to pay property taxes. Mm-hmm. So, if I'm a nonprofit, if I'm pillow pads, let's say, let's say we have a hundred thousand dollar property. Without paying property taxes, I might be required to pay, let's say, eleven hundred dollars a month for the mortgage and whatever else. But I'm not paying the government, my local municipality, another, let's say, three hundred dollars a month, or three thousand, let's say, three thousand four thousand dollars a year for the property taxes that are owed to the local municipality because I'm a charitable organization. Now, as an individual, as, let's say, a Johnny, Joey, Jenny that is paid $50,000 a year as a teacher who qualifies as a low-income family, they would be required for that same probably $1,100 a month mortgage, you can assume, right? Just for argument's sake, plus $400, $300 a year, or per month, plus $4,000 a year for property taxes. So, we can pass that savings on as a nonprofit to the... To the family just by a function of the mechanism that is almost a protection for them to have to pay the property tax Yeah, no, that's and oh by the way too just purely that purely with that that puts them into a property they might not have previously been able to afford mm-hmm. and whether or not they saved money on it they're living in a better spot than they were yesterday yeah right so whether or not they take ownership of the property under pillow pads they can still Live in a better place than did yesterday. That's awesome. And that's the that's where we look at it and say, we're we're just giving a handicap to those that need a handicap. Yeah. And everybody else at that point can can play the game as it's designed, right? Awesome. Uh, using policy rather than what's traditionally in the affordable housing space, subsidies. Mm-hmm. In traditional affordable housing, the government leverages subsidies every year. Project-based subsidies, uh, the HUD's HUD's yearly budget is more in their neighborhoods of $53 billion. And the government, what it does, it takes project-based financing and it's saying, here's $20 billion for this project, go. And every year it gets exhausted. And it's not a rinse and repeatable um, venture because every year it gets exhausted and it's out the window. Wow. Because it goes in one door and out the other. We've taken and looked at the model and said, we need a repeatable, scalable model where we're not doing the same thing over and over, or we're not leveraging a project-based financing mechanism where we don't know if it's gonna be there the next year. And that's how we saw affordable housing, yeah. right? We saw affordable housing say, it's every year it's, you're talking to the local municipality and saying, here's our $10 million we're gonna put towards down payment assistance. And after about three weeks, 10,000 people apply for down payment assistance programs to purchase a single family home. And then the program's gone and the, the, the funds are exhausted. Mm-hmm. And then we wait till the next year and say, are we gonna do that $10 million program again? And they go, nope. And that's not scalable. Yeah. So we looked at it and said, the first thing we need to do is, is not rest our business model upon the federal government's decisions of whether or not they wanna finance this every year. How, as how traditional affordable housing has typically been. Well, there's other benefits to to it as well. Like to push it on
0: that municipality, or whatever is neighborhoods that have higher homeowner or occupant homeowner. Was it what would you got a homeowner occupancy, r- rate, occupancy? rate. occupancy. R- yeah. Uh, yeah, an occupancy rate that's high high home o- ownerships, right? So, meaning obviously somebody owns it, right? But it's owner occupied areas that have higher homeowner occupied op- occupancy rates tend to have lower crime rates, Yep. tend to have, um, I don't want to say cleaner communities, but roads tend to be better, yep. people tend to be more involved in their community yep. when they own something there. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not just a perk to the individual in which you're helping someone who likely didn't have an um, affordable path to home ownership. You're also helping the community that they're going to live in mm-hmm. because it's, you know, as as far as what we've seen, at least anecdotally, yep. those communities tend to start, tend to do better um, overall when there's more home, more yep. people home. And typical affordable housing, homes, yeah. it's
1: it's 99% rentals. 99% rentals. You don't have a vested interest within the property that you're residing. If you don't have a vested interest, you're not taking good care of the property. You don't care about your neighbors, and you're there. You just feel as a transient kind of part of the system. Our program, we've designed a more vested interest and desire to take care of the property because you, you actually have a direct, there's a direct relation to how well you take care of the property with how much equity you're, you may or may not be afforded at, as part of the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was why it was designed that way. We want, and to, to Dan's point, there is, there's statistical evidence if you are a homeowner or have a, a vested interest in the properties that you reside in, you will take care of, better care of the area. You'll take better care of the neighborhood. Which affords the city better things when it comes to, you know, lack of a better term, actually gentrification or development of local area. Yeah. Believe it or not, gentrification is not a bad term in the context of what gentrification does to different municipalities and, and or economic development. Yeah. Economic development, gentrification is because of traditional affordable housing and low income programs that have failed. Yeah. Typically, these these neighborhoods become wasted. Yeah. They they lack investment. Uh, w- from the local community, and they become rancid with crime, abuse, yeah. and whatever else. It's an investor that comes in, nine times out of ten, and says, "This is a dilapidated area, ripe for reinvestment and and change, and we're going to develop it into something new and desired." Now, yes, well, ideally, does it sometimes displace who the the families or whoever's may or may not be there? Yes, but statistically, also there is. Uh, enough evidence on the opposite that proves that more economic development and more uh, properties and more, a greater supply decreases the overall and the average uh, rent it's per really capita a in term. the local area. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily displace them in the, in, the, in the way people think they do. It actually lowers the cost of living in the local area oh, versus, sure. versus the opposite so of I what... I just what never thought of it that way and that's yeah. genius. And what's, What is it? That's your, your business? Love- the business as a whole is we're a nonprofit that purchases pr- properties on behalf of low-income families. And we do so by leveraging private capital and property tax exemptions uh, to afford a lower cost of living for that family that they would traditionally been afforded elsewhere out in the private market. Awesome. And we're doing that in an scalable, repeatable model, where we're, leveraging, we're using traditional financing sources that aren't project-based and subsidy-based programs that we can scale over and over again where the the tenants themselves have a vested interest in the properties they reside. Wow. What's it called, you were saying? So our nonprofit is called, is, it's called Pillow Pads. Uh, Pillow Pads, 501c3. Uh, we're launching a, a large fund in the North Carolina area to acquire at least 50 properties right now um, to, to for, this, for this business. And we see this as something that can be rinsed and repeated all throughout the United States in a sense of and unfortunately, so most low income housing for the low income, low income demographic are typically apartment complexes. They're large, multi family, big, ugly gray buildings that you've, seen, that you've seen in TV, you've seen in the news, and, and wherever else. Yeah, and, w- and with no path to home ownership. And generally. with no path to home ownership, oh, yeah. I find you. Yeah. You become part of a system, and a system that is never ending. And a lot of the, and great, by the way, there's, and we talked about this, there's a large spectrum of low income housing, or low income. Or just in general because if half the U.S. population Low income less, subsidized housing yeah, or whatever or you want to if, call it. If yeah. Half the U.S. population more or less does qualify as low income and that was kind of the preface to the point of this, this whole venture in itself is the wealth gap in general is dispersing and widening and it's not just yeah. the, the very, very extremely po- what's called the extremely poor and it's not just the uber wealthy but even, the, even the middle class are, are, are hurting and that there are no programs that sit on any docket right now that change the way that will inevitably become in the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Because just like you've seen, the rich will keep getting richer and the poor will keep getting poorer because at the end of the day that small sliver of the wealthy need to park their capital somewhere. And the poor will inevitably become those that are stricken with having to put up with if you, uh, because they have no other options. Yeah. and. Right, wrong, or indifferent, you're seeing large corporations. And in in the startup, I come from the startup space. So there's a a term, it's called your competitive advantage or your your moat. Your moat is like, how am I better? How am I differentiator between my competitor? And a lot of these large institutional uh, capital-backed businesses are purchasing moats around metropolises, metropolitan areas. Because if you can imagine, if you can own a circle of single family homes around a city, you own a moat just almost by pure little sense, you own the moat of single-family homes. You own the... And and little by little, you can keep purchasing the ring, whereas that's your monopoly. Whether you see it or not, I see it. That's the monopoly that these large corporations and institutions have purchased and are acquiring. Now, it's good business. I can't say anything against it. Yeah, yeah. But
0: it's... Well, you can... You you can make money doing good for people. Absolutely, right? there's there seems there's a misconception with that like oh well you're you know the nonprofit doesn't make money but you know there are investors that make money Groverton being the big funder behind that yeah. but that, that just because somebody's making money doesn't mean that it's a bad thing right it yeah. it becomes a bad thing when you're making money hurting someone but if you're making money helping someone there's like what's the argument I oh I'm sorry that you are able to. Uh, you're, you're able to maintain a lifestyle yeah. or, or maintain a livable wage yep. helping people that's also a good thing yep. Yep. Right?
1: Yeah. It's, it's different ways of how you, you develop and skew a model of who at the end of the day is the beneficiary right? Um, and the way we've structured pillow pads is with the social impact side first and the investment vehicle second almost by definition and by mandate, believe it or not, which I think is kind of the, the very intriguing part of how we've designed pillow pads, is by mandate, By it literally is by mandate, by IRS rule, our residents come first, while still every, all the participants making a wage, a market wage wage, which I think is completely fair in every, every sense of the word, but we're doing good first. And that's the ultimate goal, uh, versus versus the moat that we're talking about from the large institutional capital-backed businesses is they will always have the upper hand to scalp and to take where they can because they have the leverage to do so. Yeah. But rightfully so, that's business. Um, and it's, it's our job that we're seeing to take that those advantages and play it to, to our advantage, understanding that our moat are our property tax exemptions that we can play and put into the model and some of our property uh, and some of our actual taxes and financing that we can that we can leverage to hold properties cheaper than an institutional privately backed company. There's a couple of myths I want to bust
0: about. One, gentrification. There seems to always be this idea that, oh well taxes help people, taxes help people. Well, uh, you know my business, I don't necessarily hold that um, method of thinking, but when you look at a local level The wealth gap is actually larger in states that have higher property taxes, and more specifically, higher state and local taxes, period, but property taxes in general, because you're going to see those lower homeownership rates. And owning owning a home is one of the greatest ways to start building up your net worth and your wealth. The other thing that I wanted to bust was this idea about gentrification. Gentrification has always it's it's been skewed as a bad thing, and now when you hear the word, everybody thinks it's a bad thing. But there have been a plethora of studies done by universities, lenders, banks, um, both public and private institutions that show that gentrific- gentrification is not a bad thing. In when an area is getting developed, yeah, some people will get pushed out of their homes. Sure. Or they'll be displaced. But the majority of those people don't actually get pushed out of their homes because what starts happening there is economic development. Yep. More jobs come into place, so yep. the people that are there, the vast majority of them, end up staying in that area, and it brings in more, it brings in other other businesses and other companies. Sure, absolutely does. And that increases, you know, the medium wage and income of the people that are currently there because if other businesses are coming in, they're not going to say, all right, well, we're going to start importing our employees not. from other states because that's Foolish! It's expensive to do Absolutely. that. Um, so the idea that gentrification is harmful to uh, lower-income individuals, the data just doesn't back it up. I think it's really pushed as a political idea that's just completely false, and you
1: know the data the data shows that the data doesn't support it at all. Yeah. Greater supply, greater supply decreases the overall cost of the lo- lo- local rental market and or uh, the local rental market, and it benefits the people. It, And if you take any kind of developer out there, there will be a public and private partnership. There will be studies done of who they can leverage in and around the local area for the different jobs that are available to that demographic. And there's studies done and they they do their due diligence. Rightfully so, of understanding this would benefit the local area, the people that live there, increasing the wage, providing a plethora of other opportunities for the local uh, local economy, and taking areas that were lacking of, of investment and then providing a new a new vehicle to to create that economic like you like you said with the the chance of not becoming a dilapidated area that's lacking of investment and lacking of opportunity and I I think another
0: good example of that before we get back into uh, why you're really here and talking more about pillow pads is you take for example qualified opportunity zones qualified opportunity zones were one of the greatest economic policies I think that I've seen in the past three or four decades at least, what Qualified Opportunity Zones did is, yes, it gave a tax break to a lot of wealthy individuals and institutions, but that tax break they got wasn't, it wasn't, you know, money that, what it was is it was opportunity cost in taxes. But what it did is essentially you fooled a lot of wealthy people and institutions into pouring money into these underdeveloped areas that needed to be developed. Absolutely. So, and you d- that was done not on the taxpayer dime. Yep. The only cost to the taxpayer there was the opportunity cost of the government not getting more money that it would probably not spend
1: well. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, so. and you see that a lot of uh, opportunity zones, there's development um, terminology and uh, things called like TIFs, Taxes and Incremental Financing, where the government does subsidize quite a bit of the development costs for a local area with the implication and the projection that they'll make those taxes back in the, ex- in the development and the opportunities that those, those developments the long, provide. The long con. The it's long the long con. That's you know? it's it exactly is, right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's always the better con, right? It's always the better con. <laughs> um, Alright, so before we get too off-topic there and back to pillow pads and, and how you're bridging this wealth gap, um, what has been the most difficult part of the affordable housing industry?
1: recognizing that the affordable housing gen- uh, space in itself is massive like we touched on earlier almost half the us population qualifies as low income and that by definition almost affords half the us population is afforded affordable housing so you think that the wide range and breadth that the, the the programs within quote unquote affordable housing would have to accommodate is massive in itself so what part of the demographic of the population are you looking to support there are those that are in stricken different mental problems there are some that have just lost their job there's some that are just making a, a a good living but aren't making enough and it's all so that being said we had to learn and understand where we fit in the affordable housing space and what others are designed to to ac- accomplish and support and where we were going to fit we covered a couple myths right well i covered a couple myths
0: selfishly because you know i get about taxes That's how but you are <laughs> what is the most common myth
1: about your industry the common myth and we touched on is not all demographics they the affordable a house in space are typically poor a teacher more than likely qualifies as a low-income family a fireman more than likely qualifies as a, a low-income family. A nurse, a technician, they qualify as low-income. Um, I, and I had, and on top of that, the biggest myth is that the lower Democrat doesn't pay their bills. That's not true. They just don't have as much, they aren't making as much money to pay their bills.
0: So Less disposable income. It's
1: disposable, they have less disposable income, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna be a bad tenant. In your experience, what should be fixed in your industry? It's, I think it stems directly to kind of why we're, why we're here today, talking about property taxes. If we needed to create a mechanism, which I personally don't think we need, we should have had to have done, to afford low-income families the option to not pay property taxes as a way of subsidizing their cost of living in single-family homes or, or any any other type of properties, I would see that as a different uh, endeavor in, the, in, in policy across the country, where we blanketly afford low-income families the right to not pay property tax uh to lower the cost of housing it's phenomenal that I, one of the things that that really does is when someone's
0: going down there and getting a mortgage right property taxes are taken into what's referred to as your debt to income ratio absolutely right so it can be a huge factor into the type of loan some will even qualify for because if your property taxes are making up 15 20 25 in some places in new york California, for sure. example, there's a lot of people, their property taxes make up 30% of their monthly mortgage costs, yep. and that decreases the loan that they're going to qualify for, right? It's not like banks or lenders don't want to loan people money, so <laughs> they make exactly. money, right? And, and granted, <laughs> let,
1: let's, I mean, let's, let's get the elephant in that room first. Yes, property taxes are left, a, a overwhelming majority of property taxes go towards a municipality, and that is the meat of how a municipality runs, is the majority speaking is, is from their property tax revenues. I'm not saying that the property taxes, for the most part, aren't used for good, for, for the most part. I'd argue they but, might but, not be. But, but, but anyway, yeah. we could also argue they might not be, but that kind of depends on the government. Yeah. But that being said, that doesn't mean that exemption would be all for not. That difference that you're talking about, first of all, a typical mortgage, that's about a third of what their, their mortgage rate might be is for the property taxes. That difference of income and that difference of disposable income that a family may or may not be afforded versus... Them spending 40, 50% of their their monthly income on rent or or mortgage, can then be spent elsewhere into the local community for disposable income out into restaurants, bars, economic development for their own small business. They can reinvest that, ideally, speaking, right? Ideally speaking, into the local economy that can spur growth for that that city itself. So whether it may not be in a micro view advantageous right off the bat for a municipality to say, whoa, whoa, we don't want half of our population or half, the, half of our residents to not pay property tax. But in a macro view of seeing how those exemptions can be indirectly, they can indirectly affect their local economy, can be very valuable in a macro kind of long-term view for a municipality. Yeah, what's, well, again, the long con, right? long and con, exactly. The
0: reality is that taxes should be done really by quantity, not by quality. Right. So, a common thing that you hear from economists that argue that don't really know what they're talking about is they'll say, "Well, l- look at the tax, you know, look look at uh, the tax revenue compared to uh, as a percentage compared to GDP. It, it increased or decreased." Like, "All right, well, y- that's like comparing, you know, uh profit margins yep. to profits." Sure. At the end of the day, you know, if you're going to tax for quality, you're going to chase out a lot of your market, yes. right? Exactly. Um so, but I digress to that. And one last, before I move on from this, with the whole property tax thing, I, I've talked about this before. How do you fight corruption? Transparency, right? Shine a light on bad behavior tends to go away. The yep. other way, reduce the amount of resources. And a good example of that is a school not too far down the street for, uh, from us, or a school district. There's a movie about it called Bad Education. I encourage people to look at it and all the embezzlement <laughs> that went on by a school <laughs> superintendent. But anyways. <laughs> I digress. So, how has the market changed recently?
1: Yeah, so unfortunately, we've, after, post-COVID and through COVID, we had the cheapest capital we've seen lending out to, almost I mean everybody across the board, from commercial real estate to private resident, resident, residential real estate, and it ballooned the market. You gotta think, people are buying in a bucket, and that bucket is designed based upon how cheap a capital, meaning their lending resources, they can afford. Well, because we gave, gave out too much money and we just printed cash that we didn't have, we ballooned the market and we inflated it, right? So now that, we, now that we've inflated the market, we have to deflate it. Yeah, devalue and we, our currency, We have right? to devalue our currency and we have to raise rates. Raise rates to more or less what we've seen now is completely halt the U.S. real estate market. That's stopping purchasing from what was even already a difficult part for... Uh, Low-income families to acquire for re- residential real estate, and what we're seeing, and I think we've seen in the last three months. We'll see for another six or seven months, I think, s- uh, still too, is a halt in real estate, halt in first-time home, o- home ownership uh, for a long period of time because the rates are just just exorbitant. So the last time we saw rates jump
0: up, they actually jumped up at higher in a shorter period of time now than they did even back in the 80s. But the last time that happened, we actually saw property values across the U.S take a pretty big dive. Yeah. About, uh, I think it was more than 10, 10, maybe 20%.
1: Sure. Are you anticipating something like that happening? You know, I'm not, actually. I, I see what happened in the last six months is a shift of the demographics, remote working, um, second-time homeowner or second-home homeownerships. Interesting statistics is, uh, I was discussing with a colleague this last week, is home ownership across the board has stayed, has remained the same over 10 10, 20-year period. But the statistics we don't necessarily have and something we're, we're, we're delving into right now are the statistics of who those homeowners are of that 67% homeownership across the, across the United States. Are they still low income or is, a, is it an overwhelming majority all higher income earners that own the majority of the, the real estate and have homeownership versus the lower income that don't own anything? Um, and that's the interesting kind of um, number that we have that we're we're diving into. So one,
0: not the news I wanted to hear, because my wife and I are currently <laughs> <laughs> on the house hunt. But I'm gonna re- I'm gonna be the the optimist here. Um, s- and the reason for that is because with the interest rate spike that we've seen, in order for someone to qualify for the same loan, a household to qualify for the same loan, um, and this is obviously outside of what Pillow Pads is doing, the average household income needed to increase by 15 to 20% sure. to qualify for the same size alone. So yeah. um, we'll see where it goes. Let, let's, <laughs> let's hope for my sake and many other people's sakes <laughs> that we do see some dips in prices. Regarding Pillow Pads and that path to that creating an easier path to home ownership, what's the biggest
1: takeaway you hope our listeners and viewers learn? The context of affordable housing, I think, affects everybody and I think real estate investment and a path to home ownership which is traditionally and historically the greatest contributor to financial freedom and the wealth curation for family to family overall. Um, What we're doing at Pillow Pads I know will bridge and help a big portion of that to bring That ownership capacity and access to lower income families, once again. So, there is one takeaway that I
0: want to give actually to veterans um, from this that I hope that they take away that we didn't really discuss too much, but you know, we talked about the VA loan and how you can use it for a multifamily home. But one of the big takeaways from that is, uh, you know, the low participation rate, or the only 11% of veterans end up using it. And I think that has to do with education, but also there seems to be this presumption with a lot of veterans that they just won't qualify but when we first started this venture back when we were strictly just working with veterans the first veteran that we went out and got pre-qualified first-time homeowner yep he was a firefighter uh, in New Jersey making I think about forty thousand dollars but he qualified for a 1.2 million dollar home for a four-family residence because that hypothetical rent income that you'll be receiving A portion of that's taken into account, Absolutely. so it actually increases the size of a loan that they'll be able to get. Exactly. And the other thing is closing costs, right? A lot of veterans think, well, yeah, I don't need a down payment, but there's still closing costs. Well, there's a lot of ways around that. You can do a seller concession, where the seller's going to give you a credit to pay it. Sure. Um, Back when interest rates were lower, you were able to take a slight little bump in your interest rate to cover that. Yep. But one takeaway that I want veterans to take from this is it doesn't hurt to talk to a mortgage broker that's experienced with the VA loan <laughs> to just see what you might pre-qualify for because even if you don't pre-qualify, they're at least going to tell you
1: what steps you need to take to get into a position with the Exactly. You Educate yourself uh, in real estate to understand whether or not it's today or for five years from now when you're ready to buy your first home. So um, going back to pillow pads, <laughs> um, which of course helps
0: veterans, but you know, they, we do have a soft spot in our heart for them. <laughs> Where would you like to see Pillow Pads in the future, and where do you expect Pillow Pads to be in five
1: years? We're starting down the southeast, so I'd like to see us within five years in and around the southeast and eastern regions. Ideally, you know, we, we didn't start this venture, you know that best five years ago, just to accommodate a small city, small municipality. But if I was to be an unselfish person, I'd like to see other organizations adopt our model and understand that we can do more good across the low-income in itself, and really make some real pe- big policy changes as well. Uh, and that's the kind of the macro effect that I'd like to see us have in the overall policy issues itself that the federal government and local municipalities has on real estate and home ownership. So you want to Elon Musk it, right? We well, need the give, Elon give, Musk it.
0: Give give the. Uh, <laughs> Give the uh, whatever the model
1: out for free. So Give you the model can out for free. the free. It's a big right? pie. It's a big buy. Yeah. and yeah. there aren't, isn't going to be enough time in our generation for what we're doing to ideal. More than likely, affect everybody across the U.S. There are we talk about 140 of us, 140 million Americans that actually qualify for the model that we're uh, incorporating, uh, and if other people look into this and say this is a very viable model to lower the cost of housing for those that are not earning the equity they need to. I think they would be very valuable. Yeah, and lower property taxes taxes too, right? It's a a solid
0: win in my book. So let's just end this then with
1: what's next for you? Yeah, so we've got a relatively large fund uh, to acquire quite a few homes in uh, in North Carolina, uh, the Durham area specifically here in the next six months. Um, I think that could be a very valuable kind of lesson for that area uh, to see how we grow and scale in that particular area and other states as well. Um, so right now we're focused on finishing up our last little bits of the uh, financing stack, bringing on real estate partners and financiers, as well as others that might just help with other ancillary things for the, for the business. So the
0: last thing I want you to share with people is one, where people can reach you, but also will reach you or pillow pads really, um, and where can they donate? to this 501c3, which I'm assuming they could get a tax deduction for. They
1: absolutely can get a tax <laughs> deduction, because that's what we're all here for. Uh, and it's almost the end of the year, by the way, right? <laughs> for, for when, we're, when we're filming this. Um, so pillowpads.org, you can donate, uh, or reach out to me directly at Dustin at uh, Happy to reach back out if you have any questions. Um, and and if you, and even if you want to support in any which way, uh, we're always looking for great people, smart people that uh, understand our cause and believe in it. Awesome. Well, I
0: appreciate you being here. appreciate you sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. And there you have it, folks, Uh, our esteemed guest, Dustin Martello. So, again, you can always donate below, and any like, share, follow, comment of this is greatly appreciated. It's a great way to not just support a nonprofit, to help bridge that wealth gap, and to support a veteran-owned and operated business. Finance for Thought is
1: independent of American portfolios. Any view and or opinions expressed by speakers are not representative of said companies. This presentation and all material within it are for informational purposes only and does not provide tax, legal, accounting, or financial advice. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Securities offered through American Portfolios Financial Services, Incorporated, Member, FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through American Portfolios Advisors, Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor.